Savon Springer is the owner and founder of Native Assets. Any views expressed by Savon or his guests are their own thoughts and opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Native Assets or the guest's respective employer. Any guest appearance by representatives of Web3, NFT, crypto, or any other kind of organization does not constitute an endorsement by Native Assets or the guest's respective employer. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be mistaken as financial advice. Always conduct your own due diligence and consult a qualified professional when considering any investments of any kind. It's it's more important than ever that we disclaim on the front end and during this interview that nothing that we cover today is financial advice. We are speaking uh, for the sake of education and to learn and to ask questions. So uh, just keep all these things in mind. Now, as we usually do, let's, let's go ahead and jump into this. And, and, and not legal advice, financial and advice. <laughs> not legal advice, right. not financial advice. None of those sorts of Just advices. Why, why are we even on this podcast if we can't give anyone advice? <laughs> <laughs> As always, consult your own legal counsel, your own financial counsel before you make any of those sorts of moves. Nothing you hear today is related to any of that. We're just three guys on a podcast chopping it up. All right. Now, for better or for worse, one of the core narratives contributing to the meteoric rise of NFTs is the assumption that owning an NFT gives you ownership of whatever is linked or associated with it. Though certainly a possible use case, it's much more difficult to execute in practice than in theory. Uh, obviously, if you have an NFT self-custody within a MetaMask or Ledger or other hardware wallet, you own the NFT. But if that token is referencing art or some other work in its metadata, understanding the nuances of related IP rights gets far more complicated. Now, noticing this critical issue confronting the entire Web3 and NFT community, today's guests are working on solutions and standards to decentralized terms and agreements in a way that adds a layer of legal clarity directly within smart contracts. Joining us from Remaster.io, we have CEO and co-founder Max Kernan, along with COO and co-founder Alex Modell. Gentlemen, thank you and welcome to the show. Thank you so much thank for having us so, on. So happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so out the gate, before we really dive any deeper into this, what was it in particular that was really the impetus for starting Remaster? Because I think there's there's been a lot of hoopla discussion about this, and it can get very in the weeds. So if you can kind of set that up of why Remaster needs to exist. Yeah, well, I'll give you a little very, very quick background on, on where we started this, you know, pre Beeple $70 million Kickstarter sale that sort of launched us into this crazy foray. Kickstarter um, sale, I, I love that. No, term. Not, not Kickstarter. <laughs> it kickstarted the the whole the whole uh, you know the whole environment. Um, so prior to that, you know, we were in the midst of this COVID pandemic. Alex is uh, you know our COO is one of one of my brother's eldest friends and and one of our other really good friends, uh, Raphael. He's he's is not on here right now, but um, we've all sort of had one foot in the door of this art world, whether it's through our, you know, certain family members or so on and so forth. And in the midst of the pandemic, we were contending with the notion that museums, you know, we all loved museums uh, growing up, the school trips, but they were hit pretty hard during the, the, the pandemic due to budgeting shortfalls, um, you know, from lack of selling tickets and admission. So one museum in particular, the Museum of Baltimore, was going to de-access three masterworks, which essentially means they were going to sell, auction off these masterworks, 
take them out of the public collection and bring them into, uh, put them into private hands to, to, to make money for the museum. And a few hours before the supposed auction, the community was in uproar. Um, you know, they didn't want these private works, these Andy Warhol, Bryce Martin, Clifford Still to go into private collection because then they would never be able to see them. So we started thinking, is there a way to utilize the power of NFTs to allow some of these masterworks to be monetized without them actually having to be removed from their wall and, you know, use the sort of concept of blockchain possession and provenance to have a direct nexus to the legitimate asset. And we thought that there was some potential there. That quickly snowballed into uh, uh, this, this copyright IP ownership right rabbit hole. And effectively, in order to have these masterworks, this, these Andy Warhols, for example, in order to actually allow them to exist as NFTs and sell them, you need to have permission of the actual IP or copyright holder. So uh, in Andy Warhol's case, it's the uh, Warhol estate retains all of the IP and the permissions around how that IP, intellectual property, and uh, copyright gets used. So now we're contending with the museum that owns the actual work and the IP holder, the Warhol estate. These are two different entities. So let's just assume, for example, that we're able to communicate with both of these parties, have them come together and agree on specific terms and conditions around the sale of this asset as an NFT. Well, now they've agreed, but that legal contract exists as a paper document, and it is referencing events and assets on chain, such as NFTs. So within that terms and condition, there are probably commission splits, royalty splits between stakeholders. There are permissions around who can or cannot use copyright. You know, the Warhol estate retains copyright. You're not if you're a token holder, you're not actually getting the copyright. You're just getting a digital collectible that represents a token on the blockchain that points to a specific image file hosted on IPFS that effectively says, you know, we've given you this sort of collectible and, and that's effectively all it is. We could quickly realize that this was a much smaller subset of a much larger issue. And now we're starting to get into the space where Board Ape was coming out, CryptoPunks punks was coming out. And we started realizing that people are buying these assets. And, you know, Board Ape made headlines by saying, hey, in this very Web3 ethos, we are giving ownership rights, commercial rights, the copyright, so on and so forth, to the community. So if I own a Board Ape, I have the ability to license my Ape to Adidas, to Nike, to, you know, Netflix, whomever. That, that impetus is on me. And the permissions or the definitions around how that asset gets utilized from a commercial right commercialization perspective is defined on Board Ape's website in a very small subsection of their website in the bottom right corner that says Board Ape Terms and Conditions. And that actual, you know, terms and conditions, legal contract, whatever, exists on their site. So once again, it's on their site and it's not remotely communicating with the actual NFTs. So just this component of legal contract being completely decoupled from ownership asset is a, an issue that we wanted to contend with. Way, where it is, you know, why it's becoming such a prescient use case is because we're contending with some of this Web3 ethos of 
engaging the community with ownership of these assets and ownership rights. So in Web2, where the community, or there is no community realistically in Web2, there's, <laughs> I mean, there's social media, but effectively in Web2, if I want access to content, I log on to a website and I pay a subscription and I agree to a terms of service and I access my content. In Web3, the whole purpose of it is you own this asset and ownership of this asset entitles you to that content. So there's a significant paradigm shift. And the concept that we're contending with is what does ownership actually mean? Along with ownership, along with property, there are property rights. So if I own a house, there are certain rights associated with ownership of that house. You know What I can do with my land based on what the government says or what I can do with you know, the actual stuff that is contained within the four walls of the house. Maybe that's my own permission. Now with NFTs, what we've seen very early on is, this is actually even with the world of women example, people are buying these assets to gain access to some of these rights and subjectively based on the wills of those creators, they're changing these contracts without any of the community ever being aware of. Mm -hmm. So yes, you can make the argument that, well, the community... 90, you know, 95% of the volume of these assets are happening on secondary markets, so like OpenSea. Mm -hmm. And I, as a, you know, a world of women holder, for example, I'm agreeing to OpenSea's terms of service when I purchase that asset. At no point in time during that purchase flow, do I need to agree to the legal contract, the legal terms and conditions directly associated with the asset. So there's already a gap uh, in what's called manifestation of assent or privity. So like, the actual proof that a token holder has actually signed, read, and agreed to the terms and conditions associated to the asset. So that doesn't even exist. And when it starts to get really complicated is by imparting more and more utilities, commercial rights <laughs> into these NFTs, because licenses, for example, if I own a board ape and I license it to Adidas, where does that licensing agreement live? As of today, it, it, you know, it lives off-chain. You know, maybe there are a few companies that are putting them on-chain, but the actual text of that agreement, while being on-chain, doesn't actually influence the flow of the asset or how that asset is interacted with. So it's effectively a static you know, legal contract that has no logic associated to it. And that's one of the fundamental things that we are solving at Remasters, turning legal contracts into protocols to provide on-chain actionability with actual legal contracts binding these two components together. So you have a legal contract and a smart contract, a you know, digital asset bound together in perpetuity with the permissions defined in the legal contract in both text and logic governing the permissions around how this digital asset transacts and how people are supposed to interact with it. I love to call it the uh, either layer A or the alpha layer because uh, it's it's the asset layer, right? We're taking it down to, to the absolute core and allowing these contracts to follow the assets on an individualized basis. Uh, and we, we think it hopefully will help move the industry forward in the right direction. I think it has to because 
you know, that that concept that you you named, Max, of privity, I didn't know the name of it, but anybody who's ever used a prominent social media app or even, you know, play certain video games or use an online service associated with it, before you can proceed, you have to check that box that says, hey, I read this. And it's funny because a few years ago, they started, I started noticing certain companies that were more kind of the leading edge. You had to scroll to the bottom of the document before it would allow you to proceed, because if you didn't scroll to the bottom, how did you read it? Yet you checked that you did. And I think that's another sign of how early things are in this space, that that's not something that just comes implicit or inherent within a transaction flow with these assets, because you can still maintain a a high degree of uh, pseudonymity while still acknowledging a lot of these rights. And another thought that I have is that for some people, I feel it might actually be easier for them to understand the importance of something like this if they take out what they think of as most NFTs. Because I think a lot of people that think NFTs, they think board ape, but they think art. But as we move more towards a world where NFTs are representing deeds of ownership, or they're representing pink slips for vehicles, you know, there's no way somebody would, all right, this NFT represents my car. I'm like, okay, can you prove that it represents that car? And And to me, those sort of use cases, I feel, are, are, are really shine a light on why what you all are doing uh, is greater than just IP and, and art uh, and how that's really going to be necessary infrastructure to really tokenize everything. Because the way I've explained it, even in my book, is an NFT is really a way to tokenize any asset, regardless of if it is physical or non-physical, and do it in such a way that there is authentication that that asset is truly what it is claiming to be. But once you start to associate things that do not live on chain to it, you, you really need some some more sophisticated tooling uh, to, to start to abstract that layer and make it much more uh, complex and grounded in the real world. Yep, absolutely. You're, you're actually touching on a, a very interesting point, which gets glossed over because the blockchain is so good at ownership provenance, possession of an asset. And the issue, you know, as we've sort of highlighted is each one of these assets, whether they're digital collectibles, art, whether it's a, you know, a house that's being represented by an NFT or a car that's being represented by an NFT, all of these assets, whether they exist in a natively digital space or this NFT represents an asset in the real world, they all have legal contracts. They all have some contract that determines how these assets should be interacted with. What are the terms, the title, that provenance? And while provenance in the blockchain is great from an ownership and possession standpoint, the actual legal contract associated to the asset, because it's not connected, there's actually no way to find which specific contract was in effect at the time of a specific Mm. blockchain transaction. So if I wanted to audit the legal history or what we call legal provenance of an asset, I would now have to audit in a centralized fashion that specific company that created that legal contract associated to the asset. And these contracts are changing over mm-hmm. time. So okay. if in five years I wanted to find a contract associated to you know, the 300,000 transactions of an NFT because the blockchain is you know, hyper-liquid and, and this is all theoretically possible, that becomes extremely both cost prohibitive and just like, you know, who is going to look through 300,000 transactions or the version history of all of these contracts as they update over time. 
And I think a part of that is, would it even be possible? Because people can scrub. Most of these websites are not hosted in a decentralized fashion. And World of Women, as of yesterday, they were on version six of their terms of service. And so, uh, you know, if, if they were to pull these off the website, how do you actually go back and track that? And so, um, yeah, just just once again, I think uh, it's it's fascinating to see how quickly things have moved in this space that it reminds me of just traditional startups where you build and you try to get traction as quickly as possible. And you kind of worry about the legal stuff. Like, hey, let's get to some scale. Then we can pay somebody to fight those things. And then we'll worry about those laws and regulations. And that seemed to be how people were running with like, hey, and I think another thing, so many people were already token owners, whether it's a small cap or a micro cap. And, and that is very clear, like, hey, you bought this token, you own that token. And, and so I think Folks just made that that cognitive, as did I, that cognitive leap that, okay, this is a tokenization of that thing, so I own it. And now really looking at how that's a lot different than than that being a only digital asset um, that's much different than, than when you own Ethereum or you own some other coin. Yep. I, I mean, you bring up the, the concept of ownership, and Alex, as a lawyer, could probably speak to it better than I can, um, but possession versus title. I think I, which led into my last point, but I, I think I forgot to finish it. The the point there is let's use uh, Seth Green's board eight, for example. Mm. So there was this whole Coda's law argument where, you know, the blockchain provides transparency around possession. And, you know, we've heard lawyers say possession is nine tenths of the law. But if I were to walk into your office and take your phone, I have possession of your phone, <laughs> but that doesn't mean I actually have the legal right of possessing your phone. And it becomes even more complicated because Seth Green had his board ape stolen. So that person who stole it is guilty of obviously stealing it. Yes, we have, we have no idea who he is, so on and so forth. But now because he sold it at a relatively decent price, you know, close to the floor price, that downstream buyer had no awareness of the actual, uh, you know, phishing process. So he was a good faith purchaser. So now you know, Seth Green is hurt. And now we have this person who's a good faith purchaser. So he actively purchased this asset unbeknownst to him. And he also has a legal claim to this asset. So now who actually owns the asset? You know, clearly the, the person that sold the asset is at fault, but if you can't find him, what are you going to do? And it's this concept of if you, in, you know, incorporate privity and you can actually trace legal title, you know, who has actually signed the contract? Did this person have permission to sell it or did they not? Then you can start to piece together this overly complex puzzle of, you know, legal right, ownership rights and, you know, ownership of these assets. Alex, given that at this moment, let's assume that Remaster was not inside Yuga Labs contracts for that board ape when this happened, how would you break down to the best of your assessment how you would piece together that sort of story or how you think in a court they might try to adjudicate and figure out uh, where that, that title ship actually lies, because I think that's a phenomenal example. Yeah, so there's actually a few interesting cases. One, um, was it Todd Kramer, Max? I, I may be misquoting it, but uh, someone had their, a, a few of their board apes or crypto punks stolen uh, and, and rallies on on Twitter, hey, um, I was subject to a phishing attack. Like these are not my board apes, uh, or these are my board apes, and uh, they got stolen from my wallet. Um, and the centralized source of uh, OpenSea uh, shut down uh, all ability to transact those assets uh, on its 
centralized uh, system. And there obviously are certain benefits uh, of having a, a centralized system like that. I know there are other uh, fished or stolen NFTs out there that, you know, have an asterisk uh, on the OpenSea site that say, you know, uh, suspicious activity or, or reported uh, suspicious activity associated with it. Um, and, and to make things even worse, uh, because they're not, there are blockchain recorded transactions, but you don't know who actually is behind the pseudo anonymous names. There are people who are selling the asset really to themselves. They own yeah. both wallets, <laughs> but they make it look like it's a legitimate transaction on the blockchain. And they're essentially just willing to pay the royalty fee or transaction fee associated with the platform uh, to make it look like they're a legitimate and good faith secondary owner. Uh, from that original fished or, or stolen attack. And so um, I think there's a lot to unpack there, right? Um, and, and there's a lot of ways to um, both enhance it, but also recognize the, the state of play that we're in, right? And, and that uh, when things are built on an open sourced uh, platform and, and, and blockchain uh, that, that Yuga Labs used for, for Ethereum, uh, you have obviously certain benefits. Uh, you have the ability to decentralize access to, um, you know, uh, property and 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 Yuga uh, assets, right? Like the people who bought uh, board apes um, had no idea initially that it was really a Genesis token to then get mutant apes, and then a further Genesis token to get uh, kennel club assets, uh, et cetera, and, and had the ability to create massive wealth. Um, but at the time, right, like Yuga was completely disrupting the ecosystem, right? The, the idea of giving away copyright, the idea of giving rights away to, to token holders wasn't the norm, right? This, I know it seems like eons ago uh, in the crypto world, but but way back when, you know, MeBits and CryptoPunks and, and other assets uh, retained all of the, the copyright and ownership protection. And so, um with that, right, there, there were some flaws in how the system was set up. There are some questions around how that could have been set up better. Um, but the problem you have is that, you know, okay, OpenSea stops the transfer on, on its platform, but people go to Magic Eden or go to XYXZ or, or XYXY um, or, or other platforms to transact these assets because you can't stop the blockchain. Right, you can't. You, the blockchain transactions are irreversible, um, and so there, there are risks inherent to that, and why it's so important to have you know ledgers and security measures set up, and, and and to make sure that you know you're minting from one wallet and you're holding things in another wallet or whatever you want to do to to help enhance the system. But you know, well, I, I would wonder what the community reaction would be. Right. If Yuga was like, hey, we're selling these uh, NFTs, but just in case anything bad happens, we're going to be able to undo it. Or mm -hmm. we're like, you could theoretically, right, just burn that NFT mm -hmm. uh, and uh, reissue a new NFT and just say that, you know, this NFT is um, no longer endorsed or, or not affiliated with Yuga. Um, Almost like forking a chain. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but there, there's a whole host of problems and concerns around that. You, know, you can look at the wrapped crypto punks versus yeah. the, 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 the unwrapped crypto punks. And so um, I, I think you kind of have to play the field and game as it is. Um, you have to uh, provide the protections, right? Like hopefully people are in the future minting with remasters so that there are certain protections in place. One thing that we're super proud of is to provide 
one of the first on-chain uh, methods for arbitration, right? So it's mm-hmm. I, I've actually had the ability to enact legal rights uh, on the blockchain uh, and, and file an arbitration claim, uh, and then go to uh, a Web three proficient a lawyer or a group of lawyers uh, that are completely independent of us and, and, and actually arbitrate the claim and make the, the, the argument that, you know, this was either a phishing attack or this was uh, in breach of my license or, you know, if you're a creator, right, like this person's in breach of my terms and conditions. And terms and conditions do say all the time that, you know, we we reserve the right to invalidate uh, your NFT or, or completely revoke your access to certain things. And so uh, there are certainly protections that you could, put in place from a Web2 perspective. And then there are things that you can do within the Web3 ecosystem to enhance it. And and I think one of the things we're squarely focused on at Remaster is providing those real-world legal guardrails in a Web3 environment and setting. That's awesome. And one thing I wanted to get more into to the extent that y'all are comfortable, when you go to your website, it's just a landing page. It's like you got to know a guy or know a guy to, to really get in there. And, uh, I, I see Max Wink a little bit. So uh, I, I can imagine that's that's for a lot of different reasons. And obviously, it's a very legally um, centric product. But what is you, the... You're reading, you're reading too much into it. We, we unfortunately have been so busy with what oh, we've been working on that, uh, <laughs> yeah. that, that, that our, our website is, is under development uh, and, and is getting updated. I, I hope uh, by September 5th, we have a, a major launch happening with uh, the Haas brothers. Uh, nice. that, well, it's public on uh, September 19th. Uh, that that we're helping bring uh, a lot of on-chain enforceability to. And so all of our efforts and team uh, is, are focused on that. Um, check out uh, the Haas brothers on Twitter and uh, um, hopefully uh, get on the multi-beast uh, reserve list uh, if there's still spots available. Um, and uh, we're, we're going to provide, you know, FAQs and, and, and things that we're doing. Um, and, you know, our hope, right, is... Uh, in the Web3 ethos to, to break down the barriers of entry, right? You know, right now, um, you could uh, it, you could either pay a lawyer like thousands of dollars to, to set up your terms and conditions, or um, you could maybe copy the uh, current terms and conditions of, uh, <laughs> you know, Henny or uh, Board Ape or, uh, you know, insert name of uh, NFT project. Um, you could pay your smart contract developer, right? Another few thousand dollars to help create a custom smart contract. Or you could go to um, readily open source systems uh, to create that. And what we're trying to do is create a, a best practices uh, forum, uh, not in a attorney-client relationship, right? We're, we're not lawyers, uh, although I'm a, a lawyer in recovery. Um, and we're, we're trying to provide a legal tool, uh, technology. Uh, and, and system uh, to enable creators to have the benefits of protection, to have the benefits of best practices, uh, and then be able to uh, release their creativity in this Web3 form, at least initially, and this is our first use case, uh, in a protected and enforceable way. And, and they could do it in a, in a wide variety where they keep all the copyright. Uh, they give it all away and it's, uh, or they further go even further than uh, give the copyright to the owners. They could go to CCO and, and make it mm-hmm. all public. Um, but yeah, so that's uh, what we're uh, working on. Okay. So go ahead, Max, like you're about to say something. Well, no, you're in the middle of, uh, of, uh, of asking questions about the website, but yeah, it's not, uh, 
uh, Alex sort of summed up what uh, we're effectively doing. Um, but just to to reiterate some of those concepts is, you know, what started as building legal tools to bake into smart contracts, we realized the market is still extremely young. And most of the large Fortune 500 companies are looking for more of an end-to-end solution to facilitate all of these different components for engaging in Web3, you know, translating some of their assets in Web3. So what we're doing today is, yes, you know, working with certain clients, uh, certain larger companies, and providing that end-to-end solution to allow these assets to exist in this, in, in this environment. We're building white-label storefronts that bake in mm. this legal enforceability. And um, while we say storefront, what we're really doing is this hub of trustless permissions. So trustless being the nature of the blockchain to engage with assets in a way that is predefined without centralized or intermediaries. And then the permissions component is you know, turning legal contracts into a protocol to add some of those on-chain actionable protections and bringing these things together to turn NFTs into storefronts themselves. So now owners of the NFTs can cut up their mm. assets into different utilities and transact those utilities separate from the okay. underlying asset. Okay, that so, shit is hard. All right, so it's, uh, that's why that's why the that's why the website is is uh, is blank because we're, we're we're doing all this. But no, no. I, as I said, I thought it was like some very hey, you got to have a know someone to get in the door here to kind of control the flow in. So just from a more kind of implementation standpoint, and same thing applies. You know, if it's too early to talk about it, all good uh, or undefined yet. Will there be a way to retroactively implement this on contracts that are already out in the wild? Because I imagine, okay, sure. See, Mel? All right, all right, let's go, let's go, let's go. Now, another thought. No, go ahead. You can elaborate. No, I will. uh, You can finish your thought and then then we can dive into uh, it. I've been pushing this. I've been pushing for this for months and I'm I'm laughing because. uh, uh, you know, our, our yeah, Alex CEO finally is- got his dream because <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'll, I, I'm overly transparent anyway. So there's we can we can unpack something. We in Web three, you know, that's that's a great quality to have in this space. People will applaud you for it. Now, if you were in politics, that might bite you in the ass. But you know, over here, <laughs> uh, I have no plan on, on moving into politics. I have <laughs> I do not have a filter, and uh, well, you know, I mean, it worked for it worked for some politicians, I guess. <laughs> So uh, what I was going to to get to is just thinking about how how much of a challenge I imagine it is to price this, because effectively it's like, hey, we this is something that could exist in a way as a service, you know, where it's like, all right, we are the lawyers, charge us this fee, and then we'll go ahead and, and individually, even though you know you're probably going to be falling back on a couple of templates, then you make the revisions and the amendments as necessary for what they specifically need, but. I, I, I'm not as familiar with other uh, products or services, platforms, uh, even that aren't connected to crypto that really take a legal uh, counsel or legal input and then put it at a price point that makes it accessible for people like, you know, Rocket Lawyer. But, you know, it's like that's a much different thing than what you're doing here. So did you all find that that was a particular challenge? And, you know, it's like, hey, we know what we want to build. And then there was a lot of more time than maybe anticipated figuring out what is the right way to price this so that this can become something that is standard 
end contracts that are deployed, but we're not underpricing it relative to the actual value it's providing? No, it's a it's a good question. While I said I'm overly transparent, I don't I do not want to list specific pricing metrics. Yeah, no, definitely I will don't have say to. that we are significantly more akin to a payment processor in mm. terms of taking transactional revenue. So upfront fees, and we're actually doing a, you know a significant amount of you know offering these templates, offering these storefronts, offering real world enforceability. Also, this gestalt concept of you have the ability to cut up your asset, not from an equity perspective, but from a utility perspective. So you know, your asset now has more value based on the additional utility that is acceptable to multiple people. And all of that is based on this notion of contract processing. And what I mean by that is where a payment processor you know, looks very rudimentary, you know, rudimentary at certain logical implications of, does this person have enough money? If yes, then the transaction goes through. Mm -hmm. By turning a legal contract into a protocol- You're, you're, you're talking about a debit card on that. Oh, that's near a credit card. I, I, don't I, even, I, I don't know, even have I'm that being, ability. Yes, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to be Sorry. overly simplistic. But from a contract processing perspective, if you take legal text, which has to do with permissions already, associate logic, on-chain programmatic logic to that, and you say this specific stipulation has to happen, then this, then this, then this. You can add all of these on-chain terms and conditions, which determine if the transaction is eligible to go through or not, is determined mm. um, to, to stipulate how people are able to engage with the asset and with the contracts. And from that perspective, we are you know pricing more similar to a payment processor, even though it's more along the lines of contract processing, which... I mean, that doesn't really exist at yeah. all uh, the, in the world the industry, today. So. Yeah, the, the industry is kind of really titled as like infrastructure as a service, similar to software as a service. And, and we're trying to provide that infrastructure to creators, brands, uh, agencies, um, and, you know, really Web3 entrepreneurs uh, that, that, that are both in the space or, or want to get into the space. Um, and, and that's what we're excited about being able to provide to them. Have you all already begun to notice that with some of the features you all uh, empower with this software, people changing their approach to how they design their collection? And I'll give you a specific example. When you mentioned being able to cut up the utility, I thought about VFriends, for instance, and how when they first came out, no one really understood, okay, similar board apes, you don't really know what's coming next, but then you find out, oh, if I have this sort of character, I get this particular utility. But I don't get the utility that comes with that character or trait, rather. And now if there's a world where somebody on an individual level can go in, and I imagine maybe on the back end as the creator, you can decide, like, let them split their utility up. Don't let them. But uh, have you all just on the conversation, the clients you're already working with, noticing that once people see what you what can be done with this, they're yes. kind of like, oh, oh, let me, let me. Yeah, you, you bring up a good point. First of all, the, the answer is, I mean, yes, it's a resounding yes. But what we've also started to notice is that even with lawyers, they're starting to change the way that these contracts should be drafted because a traditional NFT license has to bake in all of the functionality from day one. You know, these are the commercial rights, X, Y, and Z. If you do this, you know, these are the rights. Yes, some of them are being changed, but effectively you have to determine on day one how you want people interacting with your asset versus 
the modularity approach of what we're doing and the composability of these contracts mean you can have a base mother contract, if you will, that determines certain permissions around interacting and transacting the actual token, the asset. And then you can toggle on or off permissions, as you said. And you know what is a license, theoretically? It's really a permission to do something with the asset. So if you can toggle on a permission to, let's say, Kanye West, it's like, hey, it's Kanye West. We want him to be able to utilize this this at this NFT in a new way, we can elevate his permission status, allow him to add these licensing contracts to these base layers with unique royalties, unique revenue splits, unique equity splits of that license. So now he has the permission to license the image for you know an, an apparel line. Then you could add another subcontract, which actually turns those that apparel, like if let's say he wanted to do you know shoes with the actual board ape and list those shoes on the blockchain, you can now trace back all of the permissions from these derivative assets all the way to the central source of this mother contract, all through this permissions inf- infrastructure. And, and just to add to that, um, like in the VFriends example, right? Imagine you're in the you know the bowling uh, VFriend where you, you get the opportunity twice uh, or uh, once for the first two years uh, per year uh, to, to participate in a 10 person bowling event with Gary, where it's like, you know, the workout, uh, I think it's a gorilla or a monkey um, uh, to work out with Gary one-on-one. But let's say you live in Singapore or mm. somewhere else. Uh, your only option right now is to just sell the entire NFT and hopefully the other person is able to redeem it for that utility or just keep it for the digital collectible status. Imagine if you were able to permission out, right? Like, you're able to redeem this, but you have to be either a U.S. citizen or you have to be uh, a, not a sanctioned person or <laughs> not a criminal record or you know, something that may be in danger. Uh, Gary's the rest of the safety. bowling crew. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, and then uh, actually sell that to someone else who also meets the same restrictions, right? And, and so what Friends did, right, with the, the VCon is that they dropped the three-year VCon tickets as separate NFTs and sold those off so that the person didn't have to uh, sell the entirety uh, of, of the VFriend to be able to access that utility. It's going to be interesting to see how they handle some of the other utility features as well. Yeah, but definitely opening up the sandbox. The thing, the, the, one of the things I admire most about this whole industry is that when a lot of these things come out, and this is, I guess, a software thing, tech in general, people can now build on top of those other layers so that really you just emerge with something that wasn't really possible or easily done before, and then you just really get things at a completely different level uh, because of folks being able to iterate on things that come prior to that. Um, And part of me starts to wonder if down the road, uh, and this is me really thinking on the fly here, if we'll start to see certain uh, coins or tokens, rather is the technical term, that are not necessarily designed to be NFTs, but start to go more of this route so that they can try to protect themselves from being deemed a um, certain category of, you know, a lot of times people are like, oh, if we launch a token for our project, then we might be deemed a security or flag for this, or how do we make sure, you know, these sorts of people in these jurisdictions don't get access to it. Uh, I imagine that they'll start to explore um, how they can bake in different layers than what is traditionally done when you issue an ERC-20 token and, and start to uh, play with that form factor and not view, you know, 721s or 1155s, whatever it is, yep. as only being, you know, this completely separate thing. Yeah, Max, you're, actually, 
Oh, sorry. Yeah, you're, you're touching on this on this concept of of what people are doing today versus what you know the future holds, which is all of the gating procedure procedures are essentially at a platform level. So if we don't want these group of people to interact with our website, we just block them from utilizing our website. But now they're able to take their assets and go utilize it on another website that doesn't actually block it. And it's one of the best parts of standardizations. It's also one of the worst parts because the creator who has generated these tokens has legal rights and stipulations around how those tokens should be utilized, but they're only making it to the platform layer. And that sits on top of the protocol layer where the smart contract you know, NFTs actually exist. So by having a permissioned infrastructure that directly communicates with these NFTs mean that you can enforce the intent of how the creators want these assets to be used platform-wide. So just on any, you know, on the protocol, whether it's on OpenSea or LooksRare, the interactivity of the asset is uniform. And that to me is where I think standardization and interoperability lies is, is beyond the, the platform layer. Well, a great example of that, right, is what uh, what happened with Yuga and uh, the other side or other teams, right? In order to originally acquire them, you had a KYC, uh, but you don't have to on OpenSea, right? So kind of what was the, the point of the original KYC? Uh, imagine if you were able to, the asset could be transacted anywhere, but only for wallets that are also KYC. You know, it, it is an open source platform outside of Luga or, or other side or other deeds website, um, but it meets the same requirements as the original purchaser. And that, that, that is one of the problems that we're trying to solve. Yeah. Early days indeed. So I imagine that this this podcast tour you guys are on is is a major part of the effort to kind of raise this awareness in this opportune moment uh, in, in the space. What else do you all think is really critical to get people up to speed, particularly, you know, from one angle, the collectors or users who are under the impression that when they buy an NFT, they're also buying the underlying IP, but then also for the people who are creating and, and, and deploying these different contracts. What do you think really closes the gap so that they are focused and thinking about these issues so that really the decisions they're making today uh, can hold up uh, in their best interest for the long term? Max, you want me to take this one or you want to see it? Go for it. Um, well, I, I want to start by saying, like, first, thank you, obviously, uh, for having us on the podcast. And, and it's great to be here. And the fact that we're even talking about these issues, uh, if, if you, you know, were able to go in a time machine and go back uh, a month, <laughs> uh, six months, or, or, or two years and saying you're going to do a, a podcast to talk about these issues, I, I think everyone's head would explode or you'd say that that, that, that would not happen. Um, so I think the fact that these are, Actually, hot button topics as a you know a nerdy trained lawyer uh, is fantastic. That the fact that people care about these issues uh, is, is critical. Um, and and you know similar to just getting exposure to the Web three space, whether just buying an NFT or just kind of getting your foot in the door. Uh, I think similarly from an education standpoint, you know there's terrific readily available materials. Um, you know, all the education materials that you provide on your website, there's a ton of great materials on what artists and creators, Sarah Odenkirk did a book on what creators and artists should know before selling an NFT. I think there are terrific sources available. 
um, and you know, just uh, trying to learn and educate. Uh, listen to podcasts, follow you know influential accounts, follow uh, and engage in the community. There's a you know lawyers bar- what is it the barristers Discord Max uh, or um, blockchain barristers. Yeah. So you know the fact that these things are are happening and emerging and and kind of the the barriers between um, the average person or the the non uh, client and the attorney client relationship are able to engage with uh, lawyers and 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 legal advocates uh, to learn about these things it, it is fantastic and I think it, it definitely a step in the right direction. I'm going to go a little more existential. Do it and. From my perspective, it's really just, you know, Web3, the Web3 dream is alive and well. Unfortunately, it's been built on top of infrastructure that doesn't actually exist. But this concept of Web3 is about ownership and ownership is about rights. It's a very important and crucial concept that we cannot go back on. We can't go back to this Web2 model where people are being farmed out for information and data, that data is then sold back to them without them actually benefiting. You know, there are these stats of like average artists make on Facebook, on Instagram versus uh, like OpenSea or in the blockchain. And it's like 0.001 per asset versus 170,000. And there's also a reason why billions and billions and billions of dollars are being poured into Web3. It's not because it's a fad. It's not because it's digital collectibles. There are still people selling digital collectibles to people and making money and using Web3 as a distribution channel for content. And my request is that people demand more, demand more than just content, demand property, demand property rights. There's something very, very powerful. You know, Say what you want about capitalism, but that is where the that's that's where the strength of the American economy has come from. It's giving people property and then having the ability to exercise their property rights to derive more and more value, which raises all boats. A rising tide raises all boats. Alex loves to say it. So the Web3 dream is alive and well, but we need to demand that we want more than just collectibles, that we want more than terms and conditions that change subjectively based on the will of the creator. There's well, something really powerful afoot and, and uh, you know, we're just on the precipice. Well, I think the current NFT environment um, is reflective of that, right? The, the projects that have been released with no future promise or like no roadmap or no real vision besides a, a money grab. Um, have really, uh, unfortunately, or I think fortunately for, for the Web3 community, fallen by the wayside. Um, you know, if you look at how our blocks uh, projects, for example, have held up in this bear market, um, you know, people are appreciating the work as a work of art, right? That, that there is something to it. There is some substance. I think the projects that have utility, right? And how you get into that ecosystem, whether it's the Yuga ecosystem in a myriad of ways, and they have a, a terrific you know, spreadsheet of, of, of all the different Twitters and podcasts and uh, ordered hungry restaurants and all the stuff and, and ways to engage with the brand um, has really set it apart. Uh, and I think that's kind of the future 
Um, and that's the, the future that we're certainly building towards. Well, gentlemen, this has been amazing. This has been wonderful. I really appreciate y'all making the extra time because I know y'all are in uh, hot demand right now to get your thoughts. Um, so as we wrap this up, any 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 last words or, or letting people know where they can engage with you two individually and how they can uh, get a hold of Remastered and really start to uh, level things up with how they're dealing with these smart contracts and these assets? <laughs> well, as you pointed out, our website is uh, site for sore eyes. Uh, as of yet, not by design, but because we've had our heads down building what we think is important. But um, in terms of communicating with us individually or through Remaster, I'd say Twitter is where most of Web3 communicates. So uh, at Remaster underscore IO, uh, direct message us um, until our website goes live. Uh, follow the multi or the Haas brothers. Uh, it'll be the first project that utilizes this new infrastructure for decentralized terms and conditions, as well as on-chain permissioning of licenses. And there's a number of really exciting announcements that we have that we're keeping till after the launch. There's a really cool personality test where users define their own traits based on this personality mm -hmm. test. Not something that that's core to remaster, but very much core to the artists. And we're all about... Um, protecting and enforcing the vision of these artists, not just from Mint, you know, to Mint, but beyond Mint uh, and allowing uh, the artists to communicate and empower the community with some of these concepts that, that we've talked about, um, you know, in, in perpetuity, I guess. And, and feel free to email us at info, I-N-F-O, at remaster, R-E-M-A-S-T-E-R.io. And then we'll... Uh, Gladly respond and check out. Beautiful. Well, gentlemen, Max, Alex, thank y'all. This has been awesome. We'll have to do it again sometime. Uh, until Wait, then, thank you so much. Y'all take care. All right. Bye. Bye.